I don't generally like to read the news on a Sunday morning. I find it very distracting in my worship on a Sunday morning. But I'm going to distract you today by starting with some headlines on CNN. I don't know if that's your preferred source of news, but it's the one I've chose for our headlines this morning. Trump insists all is well, even as disputes boil. Lancaster deputy made up story about being shot by a sniper. While she was at the ISS, did this astronaut commit the first space crime? Former NFL player's son arrested in parent's death. Como says, Trump's mouth is a threat to US. Putin tried to smash the opposition. Instead, protests have spiraled. Lightning strike at PGA tournament leaves at least five people wounded. Petrol bombs and water cannons follow peaceful march in Hong Kong protests. Maybe appropriate to end on the one on my hometown. I don't know if you read the headlines sometimes and you think, literally, oh my gosh, the world is coming to an end. And certainly when we read some headlines we think maybe a little bit sensationalized, we begin to really get that feeling and uh, it's almost funny if you really step back to think about it, because sometimes it seems like news sites um, print headlines like with the apocalypse in mind. Let's make it as apocalyptic as possible. That way, these stories will get clicked. And it's interesting because, uh, you know, I don't know how you live with a sense of end times, but scripture certainly speaks to end times and how we are to live our lives in light of Christ's return and his restoring of the world. And so as we look at um, this series, For the City, it probably sounds very aspirational to you. And it probably sounds like a lot of church sermon series that are, have been out the last few years. And, and I really wanted to do something that's maybe a bit countercultural. This is not your aspirational, change the world for Jesus message. That is not this message at all. Because essentially, I believe the whole idea of changing the world, that's just Jesus's job. I don't have any control over changing the world. I'm going to leave that to God. But what I think we do have control over is the faithfulness that God calls us to in this life. And we're going to look at this idea of quiet faithfulness that is spoken about by the Apostle Paul in, in several different places, um, but we're going to look mainly at this First Timothy text. And we're going to see this. This is just the main, the main point that I hope you see does come through in this passage, that God has made peace with us. So live in quiet faithfulness for the gospel. God has made peace with us. So live in quiet faithfulness for the gospel. So just the first few verses here, verses 1 through 3 um, in First Timothy says this, First of all, then, I urge that by supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that, or so that, we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so here we hear this idea of living in quiet faithfulness for the gospel. Now, I want you to note when this was written, the king at that time would be the Roman Emperor Nero. Now, the Roman Emperor Nero, if you didn't know, is excessively cruel emperor who was persecuting Christians. Now, Paul is saying, 
pray for this excessively cruel Roman Emperor Nero who was persecuting Christians. Now, I think in our time today, we might struggle with that, depending on your politics. You might say, I don't think I can bring myself to pray for President Trump. Or maybe a few years ago, you might have said, I don't think I can bring myself to pray for President Obama. And yet, Scripture says very clearly that we are pray for our kings, pray for our leaders. So whether you thought Trump or Obama were like the Neros of America, God says, pray. Pray for these leaders who have this influence in our country. Pray for them so that there may be peace and quiet in our nation. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life? The word peaceful in in Greek has this outward sense of peace, so uh, a lack of outward disturbance around us. And the word quiet has more the inward peace, a a freedom from there being inner turmoil within us. And so Paul's trying to say uh, a kind of life that is free from outward disturbance, but also inward disturbance as well. And when we talk about peaceful in terms of outward circumstances, we can certainly understand that. If we're living in a world of chaos, it's very difficult to worship God. It's very difficult to spread the gospel if it's just literally war around us. And really, that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, pray for peace, maybe for peace's sake, but also for the sake of the gospel going forth into the world. Now, in this context of this passage, he connects it later on very clearly to the spread of the gospel. And so Paul says, pray for peace. Pray for the kings so that there may be peace, so that the gospel may go forth into the world. But if we think about sort of the the inner turmoil that we all understand and struggle with as well, he says, pray that we might have that kind of quietness of heart as well. And he, he prays for that because it's similarly, if we are so weighed down by inner turmoil and struggle. It could be hard, again, to be a part of the work of God spreading the gospel far and wide. And Paul's heart is so gripped by this gospel that he says, pray for peace, both inward and outward, that the gospel may go forth as effectively as possible. Now, the gospel message is certainly about, as we remember every year during Christmas, Jesus bringing peace to earth. But what Paul is saying here is, until Christ returns, still yet pray for temporal peace so that this gospel message may go forth to bring eternal peace for all. So that's kind of the primary meaning when he says, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. But there's a secondary meaning to it as well when he talks about peaceful and quiet living. And that is a call for us as individuals to live peaceful and quiet lives, to do nothing to create unnecessary disturbance in our society, in our world, and that we might live with godliness, with dignity, striving, again, to be blameless before God, but also before men. And that's affirmed in different parts of Scripture, to live at peace with men around us. Now, one commentator described it as this, and I really liked it. He says, stillness in contrast with noisy commotion and merely bustling activity. That that quietness quietness that Paul's talking about is a stillness that is in contrast with noisy commotion and merely bustling activity. 
I just find those words so convicting in our times today, in our times where it's so viral and social media and outrage-driven and, and information overload that stillness seems like it's become a lost virtue in our world. And for us ourselves, even if we value it to achieve that kind of stillness, feels so difficult when the world seems to be spinning around us a mile a minute. So many of us are living our lives with a noisy commotion and merely bustling activities. Whether Christian or non-Christian, we just seem to be sucked into the vortex of this crazy pace of life. And so the question we, we have to ask ourselves as Christians is, can we access this stillness, this quietness of heart that Christ calls us to and to live out of that way? Now, let me be clear about one thing when we talk about this stillness this quietness of heart, this does not mean, this peaceful and quiet living does not mean literally being quiet, right? It is, again, a quietness of heart. It is the state out of which we live. And I say this because for the introverts out there, like me, I'm an introvert, is, and maybe, let's say, not the naturally quiet, this is not an excuse then to say, oh, okay, I'm to live a peaceful and quiet life, so I don't have to share the gospel through words anymore. It has been justified by scripture. I can just sit back and just do good things. Like, that's not the idea of this passage. It's not an excuse to not share the gospel in words. It's not an excuse to not stand up for others and be an advocate for others when it's appropriate. The emphasis, again, of this quietness is a quietness of heart, a stillness out of which we live our lives. And I would dare even suggest that this quietness of heart that is talked about here is something that would lead someone who, let's say, is shy or naturally quiet or an introvert, whatever way you want to put it, to be able to speak the gospel with less fear and anxiety than they normally would feel. But that this quietness of heart is also what enables, let's say, an extrovert to quiet down enough to listen well to what others are saying and to speak the right words of grace and gospel that those person may be needing. So let's look a little bit more deeply into what does this quiet faithfulness look like. The Apostle Paul talks about it uh, two other times in his letters to the Thessalonians. So, and that helps us give a better idea. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 11 and 12, he says this, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. It's really an interesting contrast. It says, aspire to live quietly, right? That seems like it doesn't go together. You know, it'd be like, aspire to change the world would be like a thing that goes together. Aspire to live quietly. Doesn't seem to go together. This word aspire could be translated strive. It could be translated, you know, be ambitious. Be ambitious to live quietly. It's really a funny contrast that Paul is saying here. And he goes on to say, mind your own affairs, work with your hands. And he goes on to say in 2 Thessalonians verses three, uh, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, kind of a very similar idea. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. It seems that 
with what the Thessalonian church was struggling with, that Paul was having to speak to people who perhaps were, were being fanatical, who were being busybodies and meddling in people's affairs unnecessarily, not being helpful, like just meddling in people's affairs, and also being, being idle, being lazy, being loafers. Some people, some scholars believe that all three of these things were a result of a misunderstanding that the Thessalonian church had about uh, the end times, about Christ's return. They thought, well, Jesus is going to come back any time now, so I guess I don't have to do life as normal. And so maybe some just decided to laze around and others decided just to get really fanatical. And yet Paul is trying to correct that kind of understanding that they're not to be any of those things, fanatical, busybodies, or loafers, that they need to continue to live life as normal, to live as though this world is our home, as we talked about last week. It's, this world is not our home, but we're to act like it's our home, understanding that we are still in exile, but at the same time, to live life as normal as best as possible, understanding that there is something better that Christ is trying to bring to this earth. Now, some Christian traditions do emphasize Christ's return to, to such an extent that it, it can warp this understanding of living with quiet faithfulness. But I think actually in the church in general today, the, the greater influence is really sec, a secular influence. And the influence it has on us as Christians who say there is a return of Christ is that it, the secular influence can be living as though Christ is not going to return at all living as though that promise or that thing that we say we believe is actually not really going to happen. And we may not say it out loud, but we can live as though that were true. We can live as though God does not exist or that God will not return or God will not be true to his word and God is not in control. And that kind of thing, thinking that God is not in control and not to be trusted in his promises, can, I think, lead to us being fanatical, can lead to us being busybodies, meddling in things rather than being driven through the Holy Spirit and the, the, the goodness that God calls us to. And I think when we also see that there's so much brokenness in this world, we can also buckle under the weight of that brokenness and maybe lead to a laziness that's just like, I just can't even deal with this world right now. I, I just don't see how anything I do is going to make any dent in the brokenness of this world. And in that way, we can become similar in our response to the Thessalonians in being either overly fanatical or overly lazy in life and in our Christian living. I think there is a reality that as Christians, we can transfer our general anxiety about life to a very specific anxiety about living out our Christian life, about our Christian performance or our Christian expectation of the Lord's coming. But the thing is, Scripture teaches that Christ will come like a thief in the night. And what that means is that we don't know when Jesus is going to return. And he just says, you just are not going to know. Stop trying to guess the day. Right? How many times do we hear pastors, theologians, gets the day and then get it wrong do we then start to think, okay, maybe we should stop guessing the day because also scripture says, you just don't know when. Now the early church, again, I think they did think Christ will return any day. 
And some were tempted to, again, live as though, because he's going to come back any day, I don't have to do life as normal anymore. For us, 2,000 years later, we, we don't have quite, I think, the same level of temptation because we know certainly he has not returned in 2,000 years. And so, yes, maybe he'll come back any day, but maybe he won't come back for another 2,000 years. We just don't know. And what God, God calls us to then is, while we're living in this world, to live quietly, faithful lives, recognizing we just can't know when the Lord returns. We can't bring in the kingdom of God through our own efforts, nor can we just laze around just waiting for it to happen because we could loaf around our whole life and waste the life that God has given to us because we just don't know what day that might be. We are not the ones who will usher in the kingdom of God We are not the ones who are going to change this world. It is God, through Christ alone, who will do that work. And the place that we're left with is to live lives of quiet faithfulness to God. And he gives us a reason for why we should do that. And he gives us that reason um, in verse 3 to 5. He says, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We see here simply a reminder or a teaching, if you've not heard it before, that God has made peace with humans. God has made peace with us through Christ Jesus. And it's interesting that It's just a very beautiful and succinct way of summarizing what the gospel message is, that we are broken, that we are not born into this world in relationship with God, that it is through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ that that our sins are paid for, that his perfectly righteous life is considered to us if we put our faith in Christ, and that he raised from the dead to defeat the power of sin and death. That is the grounds through which we have to trust that he will return because he has defeated the power of sin and death. And it is through him that we have hope. It is through him that we know that we are one with God, not because of our good works, not because we brought about grain change in this world, not because we got our life together, but because we simply put our faith in Christ Jesus who makes us one with God. That is our hope. And that is the hope that Paul is pointing us to again through this passage, that Christ was the mediator to bring peace between God and humanity. It's interesting in the Thessalonian passage that it again points us to the gospel. This Timothy passage clearly points to the gospel, and yet the Thessalonian passage points it more indirectly, but still pointing to a life lived for the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, and to aspire to live quietly, and then it continues later, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. It just shows the direction of um, our life is meant, if we have put our faith in Christ, we are to live quietly, but the purpose of that, again, is so that those who don't know Christ would see the hope and the faith that we have and the impact that it has on our life. The Thessalonians specifically, some of them were struggling, again, maybe because of wrong understanding of end times. They thought, well, 
I don't need to go. A lot of, most of them were manual laborers, and they were like, I'm not going to go to work today. I'm just going to hang out. Jesus is going to come back anytime soon anyway. Also, there's these rich Macedonian churches who are going to you know, pay for my eating and my, my welfare, so I don't need to worry about it. They were presuming upon richer Christians to pay for their well-being when they were not willing to work and maybe justifying it spiritually as well. And the thing was in that time, and maybe it would be true today too, um, in Greco-Roman environment, for those who, who didn't you know, work hard, they were looked down upon. And so Paul was saying something very simple. He's just saying, if outsiders look at you, Christians, and they see that you're not even willing to work, you're presuming upon others, depending on them in ways that are wrong, you're going to hurt the message of Christ. You're going to hurt the gospel going forth. Don't let certainly your fanaticism, your busybodiness, or your laziness keep the gospel from going forth into this world. He says, God has made peace with us. And in both passages, points to the power of our lives, lived for that gospel, lived to represent that gospel. And so when we believe in the gospel, it, is, it changes our relationship with God. It brings us in union with him. It brings us in intimacy with him. And that should change everything about our life. It's difficult, I think, for us humans to live with the tension of today's passage. And the tension is this. Live in quiet faithfulness and the gospel changes everything in your life. Live in quiet faithfulness and the gospel changes everything in your life. Right? We tend to want to think, okay, I'm just going to carry on my life as normal. Let's not make a big deal of it. Keep calm and carry on. But he's saying, yes, do that. But also, the gospel changes everything that you do. And we have a hard time. We either want to say, okay, I'm just not going to worry about the gospel, and I'm just going to live and do my thing. Or we're like, okay, I'm going to be so passionate for the gospel that that's all I'm going to talk about, everything that I do. And we just go to this maybe fanatical extreme, forgetting how the mundane life and living it out in quiet faithfulness to the glory of God is also a powerful witness. That our stillness is a powerful witness, not just our passion. And we certainly live in a time where passion is what is is elevated more than anything else. But that passion can also lead to burnout. That passion can also lead to us forgetting that the gospel is not just some great cause we live for. You know, our church says one of our core values is gospel-centered. And it's very popular to say that, so much so that I was afraid to use it as one of our core values. But it's true. It's true for us. What I sometimes fear when I hear churches talking about gospel-centered, and I'm wary of it myself, is gospel-centered becomes somehow removed from relationship with God. That doesn't make any sense how that can happen, but that happens. Where you hear churches and pastors and preachers talk about gospel-centered, gospel, we need to be gospel-centered, and yet not talk about relationship with God. The gospel is about God making peace with humanity, restoring relationship. If we forget that it's about that and we simply talk about the gospel like it's this abstract cause that we live for, then we lose sight of the very thing that it's meant to be. 
restoration of God to humanity. And that's where it can become very dangerous when we think we're living so passionately for God, for the gospel, and yet we've forgotten our relationship with God. We've forgotten that. That's from which all of it must come. It can't just be this excitement from the pastor and he just talks really loud and excitedly and gets everyone to go out and do stuff. It has to be something that comes from within, a calling from God that sends us out for the sake of his glory. The gospel message is one that God is making peace with humanity through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are able, perhaps more accurately to say, we are enabled to live in quiet faithfulness to God because of that restoration that we have, because God has made peace with us. That is why we can live in quiet faithfulness, trusting God to be the one who's going to fulfill his promises. And we simply have to be faithful in our relationship to him in the place that he has put us. Let's talk a little bit just about application. Again, I've said this from the beginning. The biblical message is not change the world for Jesus now. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. The gospel message is this. The author, an apostle Mark says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand or is near or has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the gospel invitation. The best thing you can do is to integrate that belief in the gospel with every area of your life, quietly and calmly live it out. You don't have to Instagram everything that Jesus does in your life. You can just live it and trust that God will use it. Sometimes I think we get sucked into this. I just have to loudly serve the kingdom of God, announce it at every opportunity I have. Yes, there's a place to share. We should pray for opportunities. And yet we must remember we have to hold that intention, live in quiet faithfulness to God. And so I want you to consider three eyes to think about. Three eyes. I actually don't like to use this kind of thing anymore, but maybe I hope you remember. Three eyes. First thing, I already said, integration of gospel in life. Think about what does it mean to integrate the gospel message into every area of your life? Ponder it, seek it, wrestle it out. How, what difference does it make, this relationship with God in your work, in your family, in your hobbies, in your, in, in your quiet time, in your still time, in your recreation, in your relationships? How does the gospel affect all of that? And then just quietly live it out trusting that God will use it. The second I is seek an internal sense of calling, an internal sense of calling. What I mean by that is that if you are a Christian, the promise of God is that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. Seek the calling of the Holy Spirit in you, the thing that God wants you to do in this world. You can't change the world. 
but you can influence the people and the places that God has put you in for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God, that God will somehow use that. But it has to be something that you feel as a calling from God for there to be a foundation for it, for it to be solid, for it not to be something that just flames out or burns you out. Seek this internal sense of calling from God. And if you have no idea, if you're like, hey, I'm in grad school right now studying X, Y, Z, but I don't really know, it's a good time to say, maybe pray about that. Maybe ask God, why am I studying this? What place does this have in the kingdom of God? And you don't have to be in grad school to ask this question. You could be in your 50s and well-established in your career, and you still haven't answered that question. Why does God have you in that field? How can he use you? How can you do what you're doing in a distinctly Christian way or even a distinctly personal way in which you live out that gospel to the people around you? The third I is this, intentionality in life. Live with intentionality in your life. And what I mean by this is this very simple truth that often gets forgotten is that God is infinite, we are finite. God is infinite, we are finite. And that means we have to make intentional choices. We can't do everything. We can't be everywhere. We have to make intentional choices based on the calling of God upon our lives and just be able to say and rest at times, I'm a finite person with limited time, limited energy, limited interests. I don't have to solve all the problems in this city, but I really care about homelessness. I really care about women's rights. I re- whatever it is, I really care about whatever it is, then live intentionally, trusting God to use you in that place. We are finite people. The God is the infinite God who will weave together all the efforts that we put out there for the tapestry of his kingdom coming to bear upon this world. I want to end with this quote. But think about this. I was a bit shocked as I thought about it. The iPhone was released in 2007, the first iPhone. Instagram was launched in 2010. But 19 years ago, in the year 2000, author, theologian, master, paraphraser of the entire Bible through the message, the late Eugene Peterson, wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Discipleship in an Instant Society. It's shocking to me he wrote that 19 years ago and how much more instant our society is now, right? He could have written, he could have titled it Discipleship in an Instagram Society and just keep, keep the same book and it would have been perfectly ap- applicable to us today. But he says in this book, hoping does not mean doing nothing. It is not fatalistic resignation. It means going about our assigned tasks, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. It is not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with a bogus spirituality. It is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations, of scurrying and worrying and hoping is not dreaming. It is not spinning an illusion or fantasy to protect us from boredom or pain. It means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do, It is imagination put in the harness of faith. It is a willingness to let God do it his way and in his time. 
It is the opposite of making plans that we demand that God put into effect, telling him both how and when to do it. That is not hoping in God, but bullying God. I pray to God my life or prayer and wait for what he'll say and do. My life's on the line before God, my Lord, waiting and watching till morning, waiting and watching till morning. Trust the Holy Spirit to call you and to motivate you in what you do in this life. What I will do as your pastor is I commit to inviting you and equipping you in participating in the work of God in this world. I commit to not guilting you or shaming you into the work of God. And I commit to trusting God's timing in his larger work, but also his work in your life as an individual. And what I ask of you, congregation, is will you commit to continuing to integrate the gospel into every area of your life? Will you commit to living with intentionality in your life? And that means sometimes saying no to me. Don't say no all the time. I do need your help. Someone told me this past week from church that they said, Didi, I had to say no to some things in this process because it's just, just been too crazy and I, I'm going to burn out if I don't say no. And I'm like, amen. Awesome. Please say no. Please don't say yes just because the pastor asked you. Will you commit to living with intentionality? Will you commit to living with an internal sense of calling, not an external sense because your parents told you so, because your pastor told you so, because your society told you so, because the Holy Spirit told you so from within your heart? Will you commit to seeking the Holy Spirit's call upon not only your life but upon your vocation? And perhaps more importantly than anything else, will you commit to living out of that knowledge and experience that God has made peace with you, that you are one with him, that you are his beloved, and that that changes everything that you do. Let's pray.